Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens, and how that little studied period shaped the modern world. Once in a while, though, you gotta spread your wings and branch out a bit. On Second Decade Off Topic, I'm gonna give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, Off Topic is to Second Decade what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land gap. An unexpected extra. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Second Decade, Second Decade Off Topic, where I deal with historical material outside the scope of the main show. Mainly that means stuff that's not confined to the decade of the 18-teens. Today's episode is called Astoria, A Pacific Journey. It's going to be kind of a collection of little episodes, little kind of mini uh, vignettes pertaining to the history of Astoria, Oregon, which I recently visited. In fact, I was hoping to be able to boast that this entire episode was recorded on location, so to speak. Actually, I wasn't able to bring that off, but uh, parts of this episode were written and recorded on location in Astoria. So if you hear a distant ocean sound behind me, uh, that is the ocean uh, just south of Astoria at a place called Gearhart, which is really beautiful. Astoria, Oregon does have a second decade connection. Uh, the original fort called Fort George, uh, well, it was called Fort George after, uh, it was originally called Fort Astoria, but then later its name was changed to Fort George. But it was originally founded by Americans on the site of what's now downtown Astoria in March 1811 during the second decade. I was going to do a normal episode of the podcast about Astoria and Fort George. And in fact, I read a book as source material for that show. It was called Astoria, John Jacob Astor and Thomas Jefferson's Lost Pacific Empire by Peter Stark. I confess I did not like that book. Um, and as I read it, I decided that there were, I didn't want to just narrow zoom in narrowly on the founding um, as I, I decided that there were some other really interesting stories that I wanted to tell besides the founding story. So that's kind of how this got to be an off-topic episode. The history of Astoria, of course, begins with the person it's named after, and that's John Jacob Astor, a fur trader businessman and one of the richest men in America in the second decade. Uh, when he died in 1848, in fact, he was the richest man in the United States. Uh, he was born in Germany, Eidelberg, uh, emigrated to America in 1784, just after the American Revolution. Now, this was a really important time for American commerce, especially sea commerce. Um, this subject has come up before on Second Decade, such as the Hawaii episode, and uh, I always return to it because I find it so fascinating. Americans, especially in the 1780s, the decade after the Revolution, they got into the shipping business big time. American ships started a cross-Pacific and really worldwide trade network, trading with Canton in China, which is one of the few ports in the Chinese Empire that was open to trade with foreigners. This was before the unequal treaties and the treaty ports uh, that came about as a result of the Opium Wars of the 1830s, 1840s. Actually, uh, John Jacob Astor was tangentially involved in that uh, after his fur empire collapsed. I'm sort of skipped to the end here, but um, he eventually got into the opium trade and then got out again. But uh, so there's a connection there too. Anyway, Astor had already made his uh, made one fortune in furs trapped from the quote unquote interior of North America. When this is used at this time, usually that means the Great Lakes region and going up into Canada. 
Environmentally, though, this started to become problematic as the beaver population was collapsing due to fashion trends in Europe. Yes, I know I say that, but that's, and it sounds crazy, but it's true. Here's my official hat coming on as an environmental historian. I have a PhD. My PhD is in environmental history. The style of hats that men wore in London or Paris or furs that rich women wrapped themselves in to go to the opera, conspicuous consumption, which of course came up again in the 18-teens after the defeat of Napoleon. Uh, people, men and women, would go to the opera or to go out and be seen, whatever, and, and they, they wore furs, of course. Those styles had huge environmental impacts, particularly on the ecosystems of the old, what they call the Old Northwest, which is kind of the Great Lakes region, and also the New Northwest, uh, which is where Astor turned his attention after Jefferson added the Louisiana Purchase to the United States. We're not going to go in order in this episode. Uh, there, I am going to do a short bit on Fort Clatsop, which comes at the end of the Lewis and Clark expedition later in the episode. Those events happened before what I'm talking about now. So anyway, the Chinese also wanted furs. It wasn't just a European market. The Chinese wanted them. And this was the key to Astor's plan. His idea was to get a sort of triangular trade going, shuttling raw materials, principally furs, from the Pacific Northwest, where they were trapped, to China, and then training them for Chinese goods like porcelain and sandalwood. There were empires made uh, rose and fall on sandalwood in the second decade, such as Hawaii's. You may remember me talking about that in episode four. Anyway, uh, he would trade furs from the Northwest for Chinese goods and then sell those goods at a huge markup in Europe. And we're talking millions of dollars. And that's big money in the early 19th century. But he needed a base on the west coast of North America, uh, which Lewis and Clark proved there was no all-water route to the northwest of the Pacific, the fabled Northwest Passage, which doesn't really exist, at least not in the way that people had been dreaming of it since the first discovery of the New World. So he, Astor, he outfitted and sent two expeditions, one an overland expedition following largely in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark, the other one a sea expedition, which had to round Cape Horn at the tip of South America. The sea expedition reached the coast first, landing very close to Lewis and Clark's old Fort Clatsop. This was a ship called the Tonkin, uh, spelled T-O-N-Q-U-I-N, and when they reached, uh, the sailors from this ship, when they reached the place in March 1811, they named it Astoria, after their employer, and constructed a fort. Basically, whenever white people, wherever white people went in North America, where Native Americans were still in control, the first thing they usually did was to build a fort to resist Indian attacks, and there were plenty of them. In fact, the ship, the Tonkin, was destroyed in an Indian attack while they were trading along the coast of what's now British Columbia later in that same year, 1811. In addition to Americans, there was a number of Hawaiians among the founders of Astoria, the ship had stopped at Hawaii en route to the Pacific Northwest, so Hawaii gets wired into this story. Always love to do anything about Hawaii. Anyway, the Overland team reached Fort Astoria in 1812. Uh, by now, the war was on. Of course, War of 1812 between the United States and Great Britain. I did a series of episodes on that, and it's come up many, many times. This war was disastrous for Astor's company. Uh, the threat of the British attacking Fort Astoria and then losing all of Astor's expensive investment, that threat was just too great to withstand. And in 1813, during the war, he sold the company to his Canadian rivals called the Northwest Fur Company. So in, in October of 1813, Fort Astoria was officially given over to the British, 
and a British flag, the Union Jack, rather than an American flag, flew over it for the first time, and the fort was renamed Fort George, so that's how we get that name. The Americans weren't totally out of the game, though. In 1818, the U.S. government, thanks to Albert Gallatin, a friend of Thomas Jefferson, he negotiated a treaty with the British that provided for 10 years of joint occupation of Oregon Territory, so Britain and the United States would jointly occupy this place. Eventually, there was another settlement in 1848 which defined the boundaries between the U.S. and British-held territory, Canada basically, and this solidified Oregon as a U.S. possession. Astoria was an important port city, uh, controlled the mouth of the Columbia River, increasingly important as land routes began to spring up between Oregon Territory and the rest of the U.S., the famous Oregon Trail. Uh, yes, you have died of dysentery. A generation of, uh, of kids remembers that video game ending. The first U.S. post office west of the Rocky Mountains was established in Astoria in 1847. Uh, in fact, on a spot just across the street from the old Fort George or, or Fort Astoria. Oregon became a state in 1859. Its early history, and uh, consequently that of Astoria too, was marred by extreme racism. The main boosters for Oregon statehood, pioneers like Peter Burnett, were extreme white supremacists, and they envisioned a sort of Pacific American Pacific Empire which was entirely and explicitly supposed to be free of African Americans. In fact, the original Oregon Constitution of 1859 contained a clause that banned African Americans from the state. Ultimately, though, the project of ethnic cleansing in the Northwest, uh, which of course involved Native Americans too, fortunately that failed. By Astor Astoria, by the late 19th century, was becoming increasingly a melting pot of cultures and ethnicities. Asians, Chinese, who had come to the Western United States also, Latinos, Hispanics were always there, Native Americans always there. So the idea of this being a white civilization was just completely uh, and utterly, utterly uh, a fantasy. There was, however, a large influx of Scandinavian immigration to Astoria in the late 19th century, Finns and Norwegians in particular. Uh, many of them worked in canneries. Astoria of this era, uh, late 19th century, was literally built over the water. The downtown was a series of waterfront piers built on pilings, and in fact, you can still see those pilings today. Canneries were huge businesses in this era, in this era conveniently located both for fishermen and for ships to take the canned fish out to market all over the world. It was environmentally horrendous. The harbor was fouled with fish guts, oil, waste, sewage, all kinds of trash. Working conditions were terrible. There was uh, many labor abuses. The waterfront was a magnet for crime for so, or uh, also so-called sin businesses like brothels and saloons. This kind of thing is really common in the history of urban areas in the Pacific Northwest. You find it in Portland, Oregon. Seattle and places like that. So this story is repeated in, in different forms all over the Northwest. Uh, fires were also a huge problem. There were two giant fires uh, in Astoria, one in 1883, other in 1922, burned the town to the waterline. Finally, in the 1920s, town planners got the idea that having your city built over the water really wasn't such a great idea. So they conducted a massive landfill project that extended the shoreline several blocks. Used to be where the present Fort George Brewery was. Uh, I had lunch and a drink at the Fort George Brewery while working on this episode. But anyway, the, the water line is now at its present location where the Maritime Museum and various waterfront businesses are today. 
Canneries remained an important part of Astoria's economy through, throughout most of the 20th century. I was amazed to find out that the last cannery didn't close until 1980. There's a century's worth of old fish bones and, and uh, wayward salmon cans laying down at the bottom of Astoria Harbor, which incidentally has signs posted all around warning you not to swim there because sewage seeping into the harbor remains a problem to this day. The 1980s were an apocalypse for Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, economically speaking. Uh, it's when the timber industry collapsed, and no, contrary to the claims of conservatives, it was not as a result of the spotted owl being listed as an endangered species. That occurred in 1990, well after the timber economy collapse was well underway, and, and almost completed, in fact. Anyway, Astoria got kind of a double-barreled hit, economically speaking, canneries had already declined by 1980, and then over the next decade, the timber industry collapsed. Astoria was not a mill town per se. Um, it wasn't like, for example, Coos Bay or places like that, but it did ship lumber from elsewhere in Oregon, much of it across the Pacific. Mills started closing in the 1980s and timber companies scaled down. Uh, this also coincided with a national recession. There were economic and environmental factors at work here. This is a very, very complicated subject, but basically the way Oregon's timber industry had been going in previous decades was absolutely unsustainable, both economically and environmentally, and in the 1980s it crashed. Since then, the last 30 years, Astoria has really had to reinvent itself, and it's still a work in progress. There's tourism, there's an art scene, there's brewing, kind of small-scale industries like that, and it's still a shipping center. Uh, you can go downtown, you go to downtown Astoria any day of the year and see cargo ships parked in the bay, most of them waiting for cargoes to pick up in Portland or Vancouver, B.C. The web of trade across the Pacific that Astor envisioned in 1811 is very much a reality today, though of course it's no longer based on furs or sandalwood. I've always been fascinated by ships, by big ships, and it was really a delight for me. I know it sounds boring, but it was a delight for me to go to the Astoria waterfront and just watch the big ships come and go. That was uh, really a great, great experience for me. Astoria does have a fascinating history, and it's a place where you can see its history almost everywhere. The waterfront, the big ships, the remnants of pilings in the harbor, the crooked narrow streets, the old Victorian houses, so much atmosphere. There are a lot of stories I can tell you about Astoria and its people, but in the following minutes, I'll tell you just a few. This is the sound of water lapping at the pilings of Astoria's waterfront, right where the old pilings are, on which the old city used to sit. Astoria, a Pacific Journey, Fort Clatsop. Fort Clatsop, which has a unique historical residence for Oregonians and people from the Pacific Northwest, is a really interesting mix of history, folklore, and mythology. It's uh, one of the key historical sites in the Astoria area, and it's usually the end, or toward the end, of every retelling of the story of Lewis and Clark. In December of 1805, uh, after their long and arduous journey overland, the Corps of Discovery, that's the technical name of the Lewis and Clark expedition, they reached one of their main objectives, which was the Pacific Ocean uh, at the mouth of the Columbia River, which now divides the states of Oregon and Washington. 
Weather was bad, rainy and stormy as it usually is in the northwest in late November, and the expedition needed to rest and go into winter quarters before starting the journey back. There was The Lewis and Clark expedition was actually fairly large, um, 20-some people, I don't remember the exact number. Popular con- conceptions of it, we like to think that it's, you know, was like two guys in a canoe or two guys plus Sacagawea in a canoe, you know, paddling down the Missouri River. You know, that's nonsense, of course. It was a large military-style expedition. Anyway, after staying a few days on the Washington side, Lewis and Clark heard from local clats of Indians that the wintering would be much better on the south side of the river. Famously, a vote was taken of the various members of the Corps of Discovery. As I said, there were many of them, not just Lewis and Clark, but they're also their soldiers, porters, slaves, and guides, including Sacagawea. And they decided uh, in this vote, I'm going to talk more about the vote in a minute, they decided to go to the southern side, and this is how they came to the site of what's now uh, Fort Clatsop. One of the key features of the site they chose was a good canoe landing, which is still there. It's called the Natul Landing. It's on a short river that feeds into the Columbia at Young's Bay. The short river has been named the Lewis and Clark River because, of course. So for two weeks, they built two low buildings and a log palisade wall. The construction was pretty hasty and haphazard. They were building it early to mid-December in incessant rain, damp, and high winds. Although this was arguably the climax of the Lewis and Clark expedition, in reality, the winter at Fort Clatsop was pretty anticlimactic. Um, in fact, the major enemy was boredom. There was really nothing to do there, beyond daily tasks like finding enough food and firewood to stay alive and as dry as possible in these conditions. The men and women of the expedition were largely idle. The main food was elk. During the winter, they killed 131 elk and a handful of smaller animals, but elk was the mainstay of what they ate. At one point, Lewis was concerned about them running out of food, so he ordered that any elk caught would be made into jerky so that it could be stored longer. Well, the men just ate the jerky at the same rate that they had the fresh meat, so it didn't really stretch their provisions uh, for very long. Lewis spent his time at Fort Clatsop drawing maps and cataloging his notes. Several of the men on the expedition were suffering from venereal diseases and other maladies, so theoretically the winter respite was a, a chance to rest up and get better. Although in these damp, dark, and dull surroundings, um, if you go into Fort Clatsop, at the reconstruction, you can see how dark it was. It would definitely be a special kind of hell to, to lay there picking at syphilis scabs or something like that. Indeed, the impression I get from touring the reconstructed cabins at Fort Clatsop is just how cold and miserable the winter must have been for these people and how they couldn't wait to get out of here in the spring and put Oregon as far behind them as possible. There were a few contacts with locals, specifically uh, Chinook Indians. In February 1806, a party of Chinooks visited the fort and traded with the Americans, but Lewis was eager for them to leave. In his diary that day, he recorded his thoughts about the Native Americans, in which he thought, you know, typical of the racist sentiment at the time, that they were extremely greedy and untrustworthy. Sacagawea, for all of the celebration about her as an American heroine, and, and I'm not saying it's it's undeserved, it's, it is deserved, But there's also a great deal of myth about her, and this is why I say that Fort Clatsop is a place of mythology as well as history. She was not really the guide of the Lewis and Clark expedition. We usually taught that in grade school. In fact, she only chimed in a couple times during the whole expedition to suggest this or that direction. Uh, She did interpret uh, to some degree for the expedition, at least when the local people could speak her language. But she was not held in very high regard by most members of the expedition. Her main value to the expedition, according to the 
uh, written records, was PR value. If other Native Americans saw a woman with a child accompanying the white travelers, they would know, presumably, that their intentions were peaceful, or at least that they weren't a war party. So that was Sacagawea's main purpose. Uh, but we also shouldn't forget about how she came to be there in the first place. She was a child bride sold at age 13 against her will to a Quebeca fur trapper named uh, Toussaint Charbonneau. Yes, the Lewis and Clark expedition was touched by slavery and misogyny from the get-go. Uh, Sacagawea was not there by choice. Speaking of choice, let's talk about that vote. Uh, much has been made of the vote taken by the members of that expedition about where to camp. It's often stated that this is the first time in America that a woman or an African-American voted. That is just false. It's false. The state of New Jersey had enfranchised women during the American Revolution, a little-known fact. Well, women's right to vote was later rescinded in that state, but women were voting in America officially in 1776. So Sacagawea was not the first woman to vote in America. That's just nonsense. The expedition was originally planning to leave Fort Clatsop on April 1st, but they were so anxious to get out of there that they began moving up their preparations and, and they hoped the weather would cooperate. The Corps of Discovery broke camp at Fort Clatsop on March 23rd, 1806, and began the journey back, which amazingly took only about six months. Uh, Fort Clatsop itself was given to the local Indians. The Americans had no intention of returning there, and it kind of the fort itself kind of disappears from history at this point. The original structure built in 1805 probably decayed and collapsed within a couple of decades. It would not have stood for very long in that wet climate without maintenance. In 1955, historians built a replica of Fort Clatsop, which became a historical center and tourist attraction. Because nothing remained of its original construction, no one was exactly sure where it was, though the modern building is said to be probably pretty close. The 1955 reconstruction burnt down in a fire in 2005. That fire is often stated to be arson, although that's apparently not accurate. There's no evidence that it was. Within a year, the fort was reconstructed, and that's the fort that you see now. Probably didn't look like that in like it does today. It probably didn't look like this uh, in 1806. It would have been much rougher and much less pretty. On the day I visited Fort Clatsop, it was a special day honoring Newfoundland dogs and their owners. Uh, Lewis brought a Newfie with him on the expedition, one of the most famous dogs in American history. His name was Seaman, and he was the only animal to make the entire journey from beginning to end. There were a lot of beautiful Newfies at Fort Clatsop on the day I was there. Astoria, a Pacific Journey, Ranald MacDonald Ranald MacDonald is a particularly interesting person from Astoria, Oregon. Uh, and he found himself at the center of momentous events, specifically the first major diplomatic encounter between the United States and Japan in the mid-19th century. I told a little bit of this story in the off-topic episode called Benihana Nights, which was about the relationship between the U.S. and Japan, but I don't recall whether I mentioned McDonald specifically. His chief role in history was as a translator and a teacher, uh, the first American ever to learn Japanese, his teachings of English to Japanese became crucial in the official interface between the two countries that would come to dominate the Pacific. And uh, these countries, of course, would come into conflict with each other on that battlefield, the Pacific, in the 1940s. Ranald McDonald, no, the fast food clown was not named for him. He was born at Fort Astoria, Fort George, in 1824. How he came to be born here is kind of a roundabout story, and one that starts far away from here in Argyll, Scotland. 
Randall MacDonald's father, Archibald, was born there in 1790. Beginning in the first decade of the 19th century, a Scottish nobleman named Thomas Douglas, the Earl of Selkirk, began expending part of his considerable fortune to settle Scottish farmers in the New World. Archibald MacDonald was a friend of Lord Selkirk, and he wound up in the Great Lakes region in 1813 as a result of this scheme. As I said in the uh, beginning of the episode, The Founding of Astoria, uh, the big deal in the interior of North America and the Pacific Coast was furs. It was inevitable that MacDonald would get into the fur business. There were two huge companies together controlling pretty much all of the fur market in North America, the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company. The British government forced them to merge in 1821. The now mega company sent MacDonald to the mouth of the Columbia River, uh, which is how he came to Fort Astoria. He took as his wife a Native American woman, uh, known alternately as Princess Raven and Princess Sunday, member of the Chinook tribe, daughter of a uh, chief called King Comcomly, uh, who had actually interacted with Lewis and Clark and also the original founders of Astoria. So our story kind of uh, has connections there. But the, the main point is that Randall McDonald was half Native American. Princess Sunday died as a result of the childbirth, but Archibald married again, this time a French-Canadian woman. Uh, Randall got moved around various places in North America, including the Pacific Northwest, in 1834, just as he was about to turn 10, the family was living at Fort Vancouver, not that far from Astoria. Three unusual visitors were brought to Fort Vancouver that winter. Three Japanese sailors, the crew of a rice transport boat that wrecked in a storm in 1832. The sailors drifted around on their ruined ship for 14 months eating rice and ultimately washed up on the northwest coast. The legend is that Randall's imagination was fired by these strange visitors from Japan, and this is what set him on his life's course. In reality, he probably never met them. The family left Fort Vancouver a couple weeks before the Japanese sailors were brought there, but there were enough stories going around about them to certainly make an impression. By the time Ranald, now in his 20s, uh, had tried and failed at a, at a career as a bank clerk, I think he had some other jobs too, the idea of Japan was growing in his mind, uh, probably because it was the next frontier beyond the Pacific Northwest. He became a whaler and went to sea, in 1848, Ranald McDonald did a daring thing. He decided to get himself deliberately marooned in Japan. He convinced the captain of his ship, the Plymouth, to set him adrift deliberately near Japan. This was the only way to get into the country. The Japanese government, then under the rule of the Tokugawa shoguns, would not let foreigners in, and all discourse with the outside world had to go through the port of Nagasaki, where there was a Dutch trading post. We talked about that in episode 27 of Second Decade. McDonald came ashore at Rishiri Island in Hokkaido. His first contact with the Japanese was with the Ainu people of Hokkaido. It didn't take too long for the presence of a quote-unquote shipwrecked foreigner to be reported to local authorities. Ultimately, he wound up in Nagasaki, uh, constantly under guard, although his Japanese captors were understandably curious about him. He began to pick up some of the language, apparently the first English-speaking person ever to learn Japanese, and in the spring of 1849, about 10 months after McDonald's arrival, an American ship, the USS Preble, sailed into Nagasaki Harbor to pick up 15 American castaways. This kind of thing did happen occasionally in Japan, and the shogun invariably wanted them out of the country. McDonald came back to the U.S. aboard the Preble. His contact with Japan came at a fateful time. 
The U.S. had just fought the Mexican War, securing the Pacific coast of California, and thanks to negotiation with the British, Oregon Territory was now in the U.S. orbit as well. I talked about this at the top of the show, uh, and that included Astoria, McDonald's birthplace. Partly as an outgrowth of the doctrine of manifest destiny, which had to do with slavery, and also partly as a distraction from the slavery issue, which was starting to tear the country apart, lots of eyeballs in Washington started gravitating west towards Japan. Hey, what about that country which was deliberately locked away from foreign contact? Why don't we have a treaty with them? And if they won't sign a treaty voluntarily, why don't we force them to sign one? That was the thinking. So that's how American warships ultimately wound up in Tokyo Bay in 1853, in the expedition commanded by Commodore Matthew Perry. McDonald's written testimony to Congress in 1849 about Japan was one of the things that spurred President Zachary Taylor and his successor, the eternally obscure Millard Fillmore, to decide to bust open Japan in the first place. McDonald played from behind the scenes an even more crucial role in this event. He was the person who taught English to a Japanese samurai named Moriyama Ainosuke, who also spoke Dutch. It was Ainosuke who acted as translator between Commodore Perry and the officials of the Japanese government when Perry arrived in 1853. Just to be clear, McDonald was not on that expedition. He did not return to Japan after he left aboard the Preble in 1849. McDonald, after his return, lived in Canada for a while, but then returned to his Pacific Northwest roots. He lived at Fort Colville in what's now the state of Washington. He died in 1894, and in fact, the cemetery where he's buried is named after him. Some really fascinating historical connections radiating outward from this spot, Astoria, go all over the globe and through much of the 19th century. Astoria, a Pacific Journey, the Peter Iredale. On September 25, 1906, a 285-foot steel-hulled sailing bark called the Peter Iredale, that's spelled I-R-E-D-A-L-E, left the port of Salina Cruz, Mexico, bound for Portland, Oregon. There were 29 people aboard, 27 crew, plus two stowaways. Peter Iredell, built in 1890 in England, still had British owners. It was the kind of everyday workhorse ship that you could see all over the place in northwest waters at that time, hauling timber, dry goods, wood chips, or any number of other cargoes, uh, was also frequently seen in Astoria Harbor. Just about a month later, on October 25, 1906, Right after the ship sighted the lighthouse at Tillamook on the Oregon coast, the ship sailed into the mouth of the Columbia River at exactly the wrong time. The sea was covered with mist and a stiff wind was coming up. The ship was caught in a severe squall and she was blown toward the shore, and specifically onto a formation called the Clatsop Spit, which is just seven miles from downtown Astoria. The Peter Iredale got washed up on the beach and then was dismasted by the storm. Her spars broke and blew away, meaning that she couldn't be steered. No one was hurt in the wreck. The 29 people aboard were rescued by military personnel from nearby Fort Stevens, which is just up the beach. Uh, they were rescued with a breeches buoy, which is kind of like a zip line. There wasn't really much need for this, though. The ship had been stranded literally on the beach, and at low tide you could walk ashore without getting your feet wet. Uh, immediately, the wreck was a local tourist attraction. Schools let out early so kids could hike to the beach and see the ship. Photographers took tons of pictures of it. Unlike most other ships that run aground, the Peter Iredell was, uh, really was on amazingly high ground. There's a famous photo taken shortly after the wreck that shows a horse cart on the beach off the ship's port side. That's the outboard side facing the ocean. 
and at low tide you can walk all the way around it. On November 12, 1906, the British Vice Consul, remember the Iredell was a British ship, anyway, they convened an inquest in Astoria. A testimony was given for two days, and on November 13th, the Vice Consul issued its report, which is about two pages in length. Basically, it didn't find anyone at fault for the wreck of the Peter Iredell. The report reads, in part, quote, We consider that prompt action was taken by the master immediately when the wind shifted, to get his ship's head offshore, and by all accounts, he was ably seconded. By his officers and men. Having carefully considered the evidence, we do find that the master and his first and second officers are in no wise to blame for the stranding of said vessel, and their certificates have accordingly been returned to them." End quote. The ship was not salvaged or cut up for scrap, and in fact remained on the beach indefinitely. In 1917, somebody did technically sell salvage rights. The deed for the ship, dated 1917, was located in 1960 but no attempts were made to strip the ship or to break it up. After a while, the ship became a permanent fixture on the beach and a major tourist attraction, which it is today. In the summer of 1942, as the U.S. West Coast feared attack or invasion by Japanese forces, barbed wire was strung along many Oregon coast beaches. The Peter Iredell wreck, which by the 1940s was down to mostly the bow section and a couple of masts, it was a convenient post to spring bar to string barbed wire across, and she remained this way until peace came in 1945. In the 1950s, and particularly 1960s, tourism became a major source of income on the Oregon coast. The Peter Iredell was considered a local treasure, very picturesque, fun, and generally safe for kids to climb on, and something totally unique. Various schemes were hatched over the years to remove the wreck or change it somehow, but fierce local opposition has consistently derailed these schemes. Some of the reasons the Iredell wreck has lasted so long are environmental ones. The way the ocean currents work at this part of the beach, this sort of uh, diagonal piece of land on the south side of the mouth of the Columbia, the sand accretes at Clatsop Spit, which means that the beach is getting bigger and taller. So within a few years, the entire bottom of the Iredell's hull was buried in sand, anchoring it very, very firmly. It survived decades of storms, which can be pretty ferocious on the Oregon coast. Being a sailing ship without an engine and specifically without fuel tanks, the ship did not pose any significant environmental risk when it washed ashore. This is in very marked contrast to another famous Oregon Coast shipwreck, the tanker New Carissa, which washed ashore at Coos Bay in 1999, carrying thousands of tons of petroleum. As enduring as it is, though, the Peter Iredell won't be here forever. Uh, my family started coming to this part of the Oregon Coast in the 1990s. In that time, I've noticed a considerable deterioration in what's left of the ship, mainly which is the bow section, just um, though at very low tide, especially in the winter, you can see pieces of the lower hull jutting up out of the sand. Probably the bow section will be visible for at least another couple of decades, but eventually what's left of the wreck will collapse and be buried by the sand if it's not hauled away first. Still, it's fair to say that even as undramatic as it is, the Peter Iredell is by far Oregon's most well-known shipwreck. These are just a few stories from the rich tapestry that is the history of Astoria, Oregon. Thanks for joining me on this Pacific journey. Parts of this episode were recorded on location in Astoria and Gearhart, Oregon. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. The third season of Second Decade, that's the show proper, will begin sometime later this year in September or October 2018. 
The theme music for Off Topic is called Stealth Groover by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Thanks for listening.